Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by Open Campus, the new school's progressive approach to continuing education. Explore online and on-campus programs designed to satisfy every type of learner with courses in art and design with Parsons, management, media, writing, and more. Open Campus is more than just a course. It's a new kind of network. Fall courses begin August 28th. Enroll today at opencampus.newschool.edu. Today's show is also brought to you by Revisionist History, Season 2. From Malcolm Gladwell and Panoply Media, check out the new season of Revisionist History, a podcast that looks at events from the past and asks whether we got it right the first time. This season, we'll explore a murder trial from the Jim Crow South, telling the story of a terrorist who had a change of heart. There will be talk of French fries, the saddest song in the world, making mischief, and putting crazy theories to the test. I could go on. It's going to be a wild ride. Listen to Revisionist History Season 2 in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 232 of The Bowery Boys, The Story of Soho. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Tom, it's great to, to see you. We've, we've been away for a few weeks, but we're back. The team is back together again. And that's right. I think, Greg, that a couple of shows ago, you may have mentioned, you dangled before the listener the fact that I was gone for, you said, a good reason. Yes, indeed. And now I think I could perhaps divulge that good reason. Um, a few months ago, back in May, my husband, Guillaume, and I were fortunate enough to adopt a little baby Bowery boy. So the first Bowery boy joins the club here. <laughs> the first Bowery baby is in the house. Well, congratulations, um, Tom. And thank you very much. I'm glad that you have gotten to meet him several times. And uh, he's doing very well. So, yes, the last two months have been very busy and a little sleepless, uh, but a lot <laughs> of sure. fun. Well, I'm sure he'll join us on one of our many excursions, perhaps a bit young to join us on our particular adventure today. No, but he has joined us on Patreon.com. <laughs> no, no, he hasn't. Well, today we are looking at the history of one of New York's most unique neighborhoods, one that's been through the fire, literally in several cases, mm -hmm. to become one of the city's trendiest places. That would be Soho south of Houston. Oh, you just gave away the big explanation <laughs> of its name. Well, I guess most people know that. Uh, but Soho really is a neighborhood that has lived through many phases. It's been uh, the city's commercial and entertainment hub. It's been an industrial and even warehouse zone. It's been the center of the city's gallery scene. And, and finally, it's been something that's 
trendy, but beautifully preserved and often packed with pedestrians. Yeah, I would say that people have very strong feelings about Soho, perhaps more than other neighborhoods, one Mm. way or the other. The neighborhood has such a different feel than many different places in New York City, thanks to its almost uniform architecture and those historic cobblestone streets that stretch along the north-south roads. And that rattle you when you're on a city Mm -hmm. bike. (laughs) So today we're going to be telling the story, the history of Soho, and covering the neighborhood's several different transformations from quiet farmland to cast iron capital. And then even a major attempt that was made to transform or even destroy a big swath of it in the 1960s. And throughout the show, we'll be discussing several places that you can visit and enjoy today. That's right. So put on your walking shoes and grab a camera and perhaps a credit card as we browse through the story of Soho. So yes, indeed, Tom, I did divulge that SOHO stands for South of Houston. Right. Breaking news. (laughs) But that doesn't necessarily define what the modern neighborhood is. That's only basically the northern border. Mm -hmm. Uh, So can you give us a little bit more shape as to what this neighborhood really entails? You're asking me to situate? Yes, Um, Well, in terms of its borders, obviously, I mean, it's sort of prepackaged to be south of Houston. um, And pretty much everybody agrees that it's north of Canal Street. Mm -hmm. Okay, now there is less agreement as to its eastern and western boundaries. But most people put them somewhere around West Broadway on the western side. And on the eastern side, either Crosby Street, you know, just one block east of Broadway, Mm -hmm. or another block over to Lafayette and parts of Center Street. So it really depends on who you ask. So west of Nolita and Little Italy. Right, just west of Nolita. It was previously called the Cast Iron District or the South Houston Industrial District. The name Soho obviously is a modern invention and actually traces itself only back to the 1960s uh, when Chester Rapkin, who was an urban theorist and a planner, used it in a report for the city. And it was the first of the cutesy little truncated neighborhood names, you know, Tribeca, Nolita, which you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. and so many others, Dumbo, we're looking at you, (laughs) would follow suit. Nomad. Let's go way back before there were any blocks and buildings. Who were the first settlers in this particular area of Manhattan? Well, you know, Greg, as you discussed in a very recent episode, just two episodes ago, on New York's first black communities, this area was once, under the Dutch period, referred to as the Free Negro Lots. And actually, this was the first black community on Manhattan Island for freed slaves, quote-unquote freed slaves, Because after being enslaved for 20 years, the Dutch West India Company, quote, freed their slaves and allowed them to farm. And I put that in quotes because actually their children would still be born enslaved. And of course, this was outside the city limits. It was north of that wall, which defined New Amsterdam. And they were granted that land partially as sort of a buffer 
between possible other warring factions like the local native people. And for much more on that, listen to Greg's episode from just two shows ago. Well, then along in the 1660s, a Dutch man named Augustine Herman started buying up the, the land, buying up these properties and these farms in today's Soho. When he died in the 1680s, it all passed on to his brother-in-law, a certain Nicholas Bayard. Ah, the Bayard name enters the story. Yes, it does. The Nicholas Bayard, who was also the nephew of Mr. Peter Stuyvesant. Nicholas Bayard served as well as the mayor of New York in 1686, once the English came in. And we mentioned him in the Captain Kidd show, uh, because he also had to run for his life out of town in 1689 to escape Leisler's Rebellion, Mm -hmm. which, I have to be honest, is still so confusing, I don't even (laughs) want to get into it now. Yeah, it is. But regardless, he got out of town because of the rebellion. Yes, and he was charged with treason and even ordered to be hanged and dismembered. Yikes. But at the last minute, as fate would have it, this was annulled, and he would live in New York until 1707. All of this to say that Nicholas Bayard had a huge farm, and much of today's Soho falls inside just the western section of that farm and would be referred to as his West Farm. So how long during the 18th century here were people farming the land? Well, throughout the entire thing. And even as the city was growing, you know, south of here, and thousands more people were coming to New York, there were some natural roadblocks that prevented any further northern expansion. Most notably, of course, there was steaming old Collect Bond. Which was located northeast of City Hall and south of the future Soho district. That's right. And along what would be today's Grand Street, there was a huge elevation called Bayard's Hill. It was over 100 feet above today's street level. So these things functioned as kind of a physical barrier. So a dirty pond and basically a small mountain. (laughs) Right. So when did this land get properly developed? Like, when did things get leveled and, and, and blocks cut out and streets arranged? Well, after the war, the Bayard family didn't do very well. In the, uh, in the Revolutionary War, and they suffered financially from it. They were forced to sell off much of the West Farm. So they did started dividing it up into lots, um, and they sold sections to the estate of, among others, prominent citizens like Aaron Burr and an Anthony Bleeker. And actually, if you look at a map, um, I hope that you can post this on the blog. It's a map from 1799. You see many of the streets already carved out with many of the names that we know today. There's Houston, or Houston, because it has an extra U in it, Street, Prince Street, Spring Street, Mercer, Thompson, Worcester, McDougal. They're all there on this map from 1799. Even Bullock Street. Bullock? Would become Broom. Oh. But the important thing is that these blocks were already laid out, and they existed by the time of the Commissioner's Plan of 1811. And so because there was already this grid in place, the Commissioner's Plan then would not wipe these blocks away, but would keep them in place. Like many other mini-grids, which would get destroyed, this one kind of like conformed and was fairly orderly. Close enough, right? Right. Yeah, and so some developers did come and make the jump up, including Joseph Blackwell, who owned Blackwell's Island, um, and he owned a cast iron shop at the corner of what is today's Broadway and Canal, and his neighbor Thomas Duggan, who bought up several lots on that block there, and even had the street named after him. 
Duggan Street? Stick with me. It would soon be renamed. Because by this time, and we're around 1810 or so, Mm -hmm. the city with a population of about 100,000 people finally got around to draining Old Collect Pond, right? Which we've talked about in like half of our other episodes. (laughs) And among other things, they did this by leveling Old Bayard Hill and dumping that dirt into the pond. And they drained that water, of course, by building a canal, which of course is the roots of today's Canal Street. But that water literally would flow out on either ends of the island. And that water went along Duggan Street. Which would be renamed Canal Street. Oh. You know, funny story. You could actually float on a raft along Canal Street a lot more quickly than you can make it through traffic on today's Canal Street. (laughs) That is probably true. But with the canal, with this grid of streets, we have pretty much what looks like the modern layout of what is Soho today. And this is by the 1810s. That's right. And in fact, many very prominent families did make the jump up, like John Jacob Astor, who built himself a mansion at Broadway and Prince. And, you know, Spring Street, right down the street from him, was the first street open for development. And it's still home today to the oldest homes in the historic district. If you want to go to the oldest residence, Greg, head to number 107, Spring Street, which was built by a shoemaker named Conrad Brooks around 1806. And, you know, just a couple blocks down from that, as we've discussed in another show. There's an old house on Spring Street at number 129 that was built in 1817 and which contains in its basement the well into which the the dead body of a young Juliana Sands was discovered in late December of 1799. And the spectacular trial of her fiancé, Levi Weeks, kept the city spellbound. Partially because Mr. Weeks' defense team here was none other than Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. But so that whole case surrounded a well that was right here in this district on Spring Street. That's right. And number 129, which today, its bottom floor and basement, housed the COS, COS, clothing store. So developments are happening. Prominent families and middle-class families are moving around here. It's mostly houses, townhouses, those types of things. Row houses, yes. And there are several examples that still exist today of these federal-style row houses. For example, there are several along a block of Spring Street on the south side between Worcester and West Broadway. Same with the northern side of Canal between Mercer and Green. You know, you've walked by... In this case, you've probably just been pushing your way down Canal trying to get (laughs) Mm -hmm. past it. But if you look up, you'll notice on the north side of the street, these are old um, row houses dating from the 1820s. But something different was happening along Broadway, of course, right? Well, there were stores along Broadway, but the big change started in about the 1850s when smaller stores and mansions like Astor's would be replaced by large department stores and shopping emporiums, Greg, emporiums, (laughs) such as the E.V. Howitt store, which was built in 1856 at 488 Broadway. That's the northeast corner of Broadway and Broome. If you look at that structure today, which is thankfully still with us, 92 windows, count them. And you went to Howitz to buy housewares, you know, china and silverware, etc. Even 
Lincoln's White House bought China、mm. at Howard's. So there was a lot of dry goods happening here on Broadway during this period, right? Well, and luxury goods too. Like across the street, at the northwest corner of Grand and Broadway, in 1859, was built the Lord and Taylor store, and across from that, on the northeast corner, the Brooks Brothers store, which opened in 1858, and two blocks north of that, on the east side of Broadway, between Spring and Prince, was Tiffany and Company, opened at 550 Broadway in 1854. And in many of these cases, they opened downtown, but they moved with the masses to this location in the 1850s, and they would stay here、um, for a couple decades before leaving the neighborhood to head off to Ladies Mile,、mm -hmm. which became the preeminent shopping center in the late 19th century, and which was located north of Union Square and along Sixth Avenue between 14th and 23rd Street. But I'm getting a sense by this period that on Broadway you have these larger structures. Then a little bit further west, you had still a lot more residential. Yes, Mercer Green, Worcester. These were lined with private residences、mm -hmm. and row houses. But Broadway wasn't just a place of department stores;、um, it was also a place of hotels. The most glamorous of which was the Saint Nicholas Hotel. Which was located on the west side of Broadway, between Broom and Spring, on the northern half of that block. How long was the Saint Nicholas open? Only until 1884, because the crowds had moved on uptown. But actually, two parts of the original hotel still stand today. If you go to 521 and number 523 Broadway. Which downstairs today houses a lady Footlocker.、Um, if you look fine, up, <laughs> keeping up a fine tradition. Well, at least it still houses a lady. Sure, a lady Footlocker. <laughs> But if you look upstairs from the lady, you'll notice that the building itself is very old and dates from the 1850s. So these things always go hand in hand here in New York City history: department stores、mm -hmm. and, of course. Hotels,、right. and so I think the the third part of this must be some theaters. That's right. That we had to give the people something to do at night, right? And indeed, this was the entertainment district in the 1850s and 1860s. The list is long of theaters and、uh, music halls and even casinos that could be found along Broadway. Some notable ones included at 514 Broadway Woods Minstrel Hall. Uh, which was opened in 1862 by Fernando Wood's brother Henry Wood, and on the other side of Broadway at 537 between Spring and Prince was P.T. Barnum's American Museum Take Two. Oh, right, because the other one had burnt down, so this was the second location, which opened in 1865. That's right, and also burnt down. <laughs> That's right,、um, just three years after opening. But Tom, I think one of my favorite theaters is in this particular neighborhood during this period. Are you talking about Niblo's Garden? Oh, yes. Yes. So Niblo's Garden, which not to oversell our recent episodes, <laughs> but you just ran the first Broadway musical,、um, a、mm -hmm. show from the first about the Black Crook. Yes. That debuted at Niblo's Garden in 1866, and Niblo's Garden was located on the northern side of Prince, between Broadway and Crosby. In 1828, William Niblo had converted an outdoor arena space into what they called a pleasure garden, called Sans Souci, which he would then redevelop and rename Niblo's Garden and Theater in 1834. 
And this was a place that served many purposes. It was originally a pleasure garden, but then, of course, was most famous for its 3,000-seat theater, which which had lofty productions. Yes, and people in the lofts. (laughs) So, yeah, this entire stretch had become, you know, New York's capital of entertainment and shopping and tourism. You could get something to eat and drink, by the way, at many establishments, including one at 94 Prince Street at the corner of Mercer, which opened in 1847. Now, in the early days, this place alternated between being a grocery store and a bar, but it finally settled on being a saloon in 1867 and would operate under various different names until finally Michael Finelli bought it in 1922, and it has since kept that name, Finelli Cafe, even though the Finelli family sold it in 1982. But it's a place that you and I love. Mm-hmm. We had lunch there this week. And it traces back to this period. That's right. At least in its original form. And is either the second, third, or fourth oldest <laughs> drinking establishment <laughs> in the city, depending on how you count, you know, continuously operating, etc. And what day of the week you're talking to whoever. Yeah. That's a lot going on in these streets. <laughs> um, but that wasn't the only thing happening. No. Finally, I mean, if there's shopping and eating and pleasure gardening and hotels, then it naturally follows that there would also be brothels. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the blocks that were running parallel to Broadway, uh, Crosby to the east and Mercer and Green to the west, became the most notorious red light district in the city. And they had something to offer for everyone, all classes, all ethnicities, all tastes. Uh, There were even guidebooks that were written to guide tourists through the brothel scene of this neighborhood. Between 1850 and 1870s, it's reported that almost half of all of New York's houses of ill repute were located in buildings around here, in former boarding houses, those types of things, Mm -hmm. which is really strange to me because it's going on at the same time as these big, lavish theaters and hotels. A lot of this has to do with the idea of being before electric street lamps. Mm -hmm. So the life of the street would become something quite different than it was during the day. And this would parallel what would happen into this area in the 1960s and 70s. Tom, when you listed all these street names earlier, and they all seemed very familiar. That's right. There's actually one more street that you didn't list. It was named Lawrence Street. Lawrence Street. Yeah, it was also a north-south street. And it had such a surly reputation with all of these uh, brothels that it was actually nicknamed Rotten Row. Good grief. Got to steer clear of Rotten Row (laughs) after dark. Well, eventually they wanted to extend Fifth Avenue, you know, that had run north of here. They wanted to extend it down towards the area of today's financial district. So they had to expand that because they couldn't have all of these fancy carriages running through old Rotten Row. They decided to change the name of the street in hopes that that would change its reputation. So they would change that name to West Broadway. Interesting. So West Broadway could have been South Fifth Avenue. Yes, but it, they want they, they needed to like gussy it up a little bit, make it give it a fancier name. But then when they built the elevated railroad, they decided to build it along here also. And so thus the street was expanded even further. So this particular street has gone through a lot of changes even before the 1880s. All right, so these things are all well and good and interesting, but it does seem like we're missing one key ingredient to Soho uh, that makes it so iconic today. That ingredient would be cast iron architecture. 
Now, I'm glad you mentioned ingredients, Tom. You have a... a I didn't even know what I was saying. <laughs> you have a very opulent kitchen with appliances of great sophistication. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> do, you, do you happen to have any cast iron cookware? I do. I use it to make burgers, you know, in winter. Yeah, you, I mean, uh, many people have them. The waffle irons, Dutch ovens, griddles. Many of these things are often cast iron. That's yeah. right, and they, they can be very heavy. Yeah, I mean, but it's brilliant to cook with, and it used to once be brilliant to build with. Iron-copper alloy has a very low melting temperature, which means that you can shape it or cast it Mm -hmm. into various ornate shapes when you pour it into molds. Now, this use of iron, of this particular kind of iron, has been around for centuries, but it was in the 18th century, beginning of the early 19th century, that great strides in foundries and in pouring molds, things became much improved so that cast iron all of a sudden, which had seemed like a very expensive technology, was now very cheap and people could begin using it to actually construct buildings. So the same iron that's in my griddle Mm -hmm. could be used to construct a glorious facade. Tom, your griddle Uh is like a distant cousin to the grand structures of Soho. Very distant. <laughs> now, this all began happening around the 1850s and only you know grew with prominence through the next few decades. What you could do is make tall buildings, so up to six stories, that was quite tall for the day, without making large foundation walls. You know, up to this time, what were people making buildings out of? Masonry, brick. Yeah. Well, now you could construct them with gorgeous ornamentation, that looked like they were made of stone, but were actually made of this cheaper material and stronger material. You could use it both to create ornamentation and also to create structural components of a building. So these foundries could use molds to make parts of buildings, Mm -hmm. and the builders would then paint over them to make them look not like iron at all, but look like stone or marble. Right. I mean, throughout the decades, it even became fashionable to kind of leave it looking a little ironish. And you'll see many different examples of all different styles of cast iron architecture here in this area. What also cast iron allowed was the construction of large windows so that natural light could pour in in a period where people only had gaslight. So you could have higher ceilings with bigger windows and less space devoted to structure mm-hmm. because they were so strong. So it just gave everything a lighter and airier appearance. Yeah, it made this real estate more valuable, more cost effective. You could use every square inch of it. The popularity of cast iron is thanks in no small part to a man named James Bugardus, who was an inventor who popularized and marketed cast iron construction. He even had his own cast iron factory that was built in 1848 that was located on the corner of Duane and Center Street. Wait, Duane and Center Street. That's kind of over by (laughs) five points. Weirdly close to five points, actually, during this period. This was the first cast iron building in the world. Why do we know this? Because, Tom, I found... Uh, a very irate letter to the editor in the New York Times from July 28th, 1853. Quote, to your editor, in your paper, I observed the following remarks, that the matter of iron construction on a large scale was and is entirely new in this country. No edifice entirely of iron yet existed in the United States. That 
is a mistake, as the building at the corner of Center and Duane Street, erected in 1848, is built entirely of cast iron and, being filled with heavy machinery, has well tested the strengths and stability of that mode of building. And it is not only the first building erected entirely of cast iron in this country, but the first in any part of the world. By correcting the above-mentioned error, you will much oblige. Yours respectfully... James Begardus. Ah, correcting the record. <laughs> so this was a new building form right at the time that New York City was booming. And New York loved its ornamentation and it wanted something new. It wanted something that was uniquely American. And that's what cast iron offered. So we were talking about department stores, which would obviously benefit from having high ceilings and giant windows to let in tons of light and help out shoppers and just be a more appealing experience. Mm -hmm. But others were using the same cast iron technology. Yes, namely warehouses. So the area west of Broadway would be filled with hundreds of warehouses. So part of the reason is that the shipping concerns of New York City were now moving over, transitioning to the west side of town. Why were they doing that? Well, in the late 1860s, Mr. Cornelius Vanderbilt mm -hmm. uh, built his St. John's Terminal, built as a, a terminus for the Hudson River Railroad, where vast goods were coming through for import and export. And there were also the growing port and market districts of the West Side. So all of these warehouses were supporting those industries as well as supporting the department stores that were up and down Broadway. So warehouses and those mercantile businesses were moving from the seaport area, mm -hmm. transitioning, moving as close to that terminal as possible. Right. And mm -hmm. all of these blocks were open and available. Yeah, and they were arriving here around the period of cast iron architecture. There was even a cast iron foundry just a couple blocks away in the area of Soho. And they were just ripping down, I guess, the residences. Yeah, most of the residences were gone, although obviously a few remain, as you said, to be replaced by what I would call very a very uniform style of architecture. Most of these buildings are five to six stories tall, which was tall for the day. This height limitation or this height restriction makes the district rather unique today. I can't imagine that there was strict zoning in the 1850s and 60s. No. Why would they only go five or six floors? It was practical because it was it was about all that they could go. And this is even before the days of like big freight elevators, which mm. would come along shortly. But the, so the buildings couldn't be that tall. And even cast iron had its limits. Now, most of these buildings are white or cream, have those kinds of exteriors, large windows with some kind of standard cornice on them. And you'll very rarely see the types of things on more masonry, marble type buildings. You'll rarely see gargoyles and caryatids and things like that. But these colors that you're talking about, and certainly if you stand along Green Street today and you look up and down and see those cast iron facades of yeah. these warehouses... There are many, many different colors. That's all paint. It's all paint, right. Cast iron became the face of the early Gilded Age and became really a signature of New York architecture. Walt Whitman actually even wrote about cast iron in his poem, Manhattan in Leaves of Grass. Quote, Numberless crowded streets, high growth of iron, slender, strong, light, splendidly uprising towards clear skies. 
So the Howitt building, by the way, which you mentioned, is probably the best known example of cast iron architecture in New York City. Some have called it the first skyscraper. And this is the building at the northeast corner of Broome and Broadway at 488 Broadway. Also, uh, the Howitt building, speaking of elevators, was the first to install an Otis elevator for passengers. For passengers, right. But I like Walt Whitman's uh, little ode to cast iron. He makes sure. it sound very elegant. Mm-hmm. Well, and for a while it was associated with elegance. But there was almost too much indulgence in cast iron in this district. Too much frivolity? Well, there was just too much of the same. Because what happened when you have all these warehouses built in the same style is Mm. that it couldn't keep other types of businesses in the region. It became a warehouse district. And, of course, with New York's constantly moving northward, the theaters and the shops and everything soon left the neighborhood. They were also, of course, scared off by the brothels, not surprisingly. Well, okay, that makes sense that there would be some warehouse fatigue, but is that the only reason that cast iron fell out of fashion? Well, there's also a little dangerous element to this, because cast iron buildings are not very fireproof. As we'll see, the cast iron buildings will earn a rather morose Nickname. Now, when I was looking through old newspaper clippings of just the like searching on the names of the streets here, I am not kidding you when I tell you that most of the articles that I ran into from around the 1860s to 1880s were about fires. Oh. But then finally, steel frame construction would then come along in, in the 1880s, which would inspire the skyscraper age and would prove to be a cheaper and even lighter building material. Right. Of course, skyscrapers would help define many other neighborhoods. Not so much Soho, which is, at this point, the start of the 20th century, beginning to be left behind. And that is because many of the department stores and the theaters and the hotels had left the area by the 1880s and moved uptown. Even some of the brothels had left. So where did that leave Soho and these amazing cast iron structures? We'll get to that story after this. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by Blue Apron. Picnics, potlucks, dinner parties, barbecues, good food is essential to a successful summer. And now it's easier than ever to create delicious summer meals with Blue Apron. Because for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. Now, those pre-portioned ingredients Mm -hmm. have saved my life the past couple weeks. I'm explaining. Well, I just moved into a brand new apartment. That's right. I'm not the only one with news. (laughs) Greg moved on what? July 5th. Yeah. And and in fact, I'm still unpacking. Mm -hmm. How's your fridge? Well, so the fridge, of course, is empty. And I haven't been cooking a lot until I got my blue apron. And so the cool thing is that even though I had an empty refrigerator, now with blue apron, I have the exact right amount of ingredients for three perfect meals. And Blue Apron is completely flexible. So you can customize your recipes. You can go to their website and customize which recipes you want and choose a delivery option that best fits your needs. Some of the meals available in July include seared chicken and creamy pasta salad with summer squash and sweet peppers, fresh basil fettuccine pasta with sweet corn and cubanelle pepper, and chili butter steaks with Parmesan potatoes and spinach. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Bowery. 
You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. That's blueapron.com slash Bowery. Today's show is also brought to you by Away. Away offers high-quality luggage that is designed to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way you travel. Available in nine colors and four sizes, including carry-on sizes that are compliant with all major U.S. airlines, the Away suitcase is lightweight and unrivaled in strength and impact resistance. Not to mention, it features a TSA-approved combination lock, four 360-degree spinner wheels, and a patent-pending compression system to help overpackers. And here's my favorite part. Both sizes of the carry-on are available to charge anything that's powered by a USB cord. A single charge will power your iPhone five times. I am serious, Greg, when I tell you that this is the only time I'm happy that my suitcase carries an extra charge. (laughs) Oh, that's right. You took your away bag recently. You went away. That's right. I went away with my away back to Ohio for a few weeks, and it was lovely. I really... I I love how organized it is inside because it's designed very well and helps me keep my things sorted. But I really, really love the charge feature of the USB cable. It's so unexpected. And when you land, you can just charge up your phone. Thanks to Away's lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, they'll fix or replace it for you for life. Try out Away for 100 days, and if at any point you decide it's not for you, return it for a full refund. So, for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash Bowery and use promo code Bowery, with a lowercase b, during checkout for $20 off your Away suitcase. And we'd like to thank Away and Blue Apron for their support. And now, back to Soho. Okay, so Greg, you left us really at the end of the 19th century, by which point many of the fancy department stores and the theaters and the hotels had moved farther north, uptown. Mm -hmm. But there was still industry happening on the side streets, light industry, warehouses. Manufacturing. And some of these light industries would stay through the mid-20th century. But broadly speaking, in the 20th century, Soho was a neighborhood that was in decline. Its heyday was over. Right. And many of the buildings that had been constructed, even for those side streets and for industrial uses, were no longer really relevant. They were sort of outdated. Manufacturing had changed, and it required heavier machinery. And these buildings were, you know, by the mid-20th century, no longer really suitable for that sort of manufacturing. And actually, many of them were deemed fire traps. They were unsuitable even for for workers to be in. Well, people can build larger storage units further away because you had better transportation. Right. Well, yeah, because modern factories required trucks to be able to get to them. And anybody who's driven a truck through Soho um, <laughs> is going to be stopping at Finelli's on the way home <laughs> Very, to, to recover. Uh, yes. Quite a challenge. So, right, they didn't have the infrastructure hub to it. You know, gone were the days when they were shipping things out of St. John's freight terminal. Um, That was gone, replaced by the entrance to the Holland Tunnel. And industry had changed, moved either uptown, say, to the Garment District, but many of it had moved to outer boroughs, to the Bronx, to Brooklyn, or elsewhere in the country. But some industry managed to stick around this area, Right. There were some print shops that stayed, some 
uh, light industry manufacturers of odds and ends, and there were even some sweatshops operating. But it was mostly a neighborhood in decline, and buildings were becoming so unsafe um, and not up to the fire codes that it got a new moniker, a new nickname uh, given to it by the fire commissioner, Edward Cavanaugh Jr., who called it Hell's Hundred Acres. Hmm. Soho was sort of the core of that, although the, that quote, 100 acres, really stretched the sort of length of the island around this period. There but, was a yeah. lot of hell. Yeah, but, it actually yeah. stretched all the way down to Chambers Street and but up it, to Houston. But it was basically these sorts of structures that he was referring to. Right. He was looking at these old warehouses that would often still be filled with old flammable supplies and trash and other flammable items. They would catch fire, sometimes under mysterious circumstances, and firemen would have to rush into these unsafe structures and risk their lives putting out fires in places, you know, they might find doors nailed shut, fire escapes not working. One of the problems of Soho's warehouses as well is that there would be shaftways that were constructed right up against uh, the front facade next to the door. Sometimes, you know, in a smoke-filled building on fire, Firemen would break through the window, enter the building only to fall down the shaftway, which is why today when you're walking around in Soho, you'll see signs that say shaftway on the windows. Those signs are preserved. But there are still some homes around here. There were still buildings, residences that were that were around. Were people moving into them still? Were people yes. still living there? Well, the, you know, the area that we've mostly been talking about, those that make up the, the Soho Cast Iron Historic District, These buildings were zoned for commercial and industrial use for the most part. There were very few buildings in these blocks that were zoned for residential living. A notable exception was an Italian enclave uh, that was living in the western section of Soho, uh, west of West Broadway, in tenement-style apartment buildings uh, that stretched from here up to the West Village. Many, if not most, of those structures are still there today. And there are even a couple establishments that trace themselves back to this period, including there's a storefront for the old Vesuvio Bakery. Right, at 160 Prince Street. Um, That was started in 1920 by the Dapolito family. It's got a fabulous lime green storefront. Mm -hmm. And it was an Italian bakery. They sold Italian bread and biscuits. It closed in 2009, and today the Birdbath Bakery operates out of the space, sells delicious cookies and very strong coffee. And they fortunately kept the storefront looking much like it did. It even still says Vesuvio Bakery. And one of the only parks, one of the only open spaces here in this area, is actually a small playground named Vesuvio Playground. And that's just right around the corner Mm -hmm. from the bakery. Now, this would not be a history of New York neighborhoods in the 20th century without the appearance of our old friend Robert Moses. And Moses, I'm sure, was a huge fan of this area. This, like, oh my gosh, he loved <laughs> decrepit warehouses. No, uh, he had been planning actually since the 1940s to ram a an elevated expressway across Lower Manhattan. Actually, he had been planning to ram expressways throughout Manhattan. There was a lower Manhattan, a mid-Manhattan, a Harlem Expressway. He worked tirelessly, you know, to to modernize many aspects of the city's infrastructure and uh, transportation networks, you know, in his mad dash to keep the city relevant and functional in the automobile age. He thought that, you know, if the city was to survive, there had to be expressways 
people had to be able to get around by car. They had to be able to park their car. Mm -hmm. There needed to be a big leap forward in the modern city. And that didn't make him very sympathetic to the plight of a neighborhood like Soho, which he looked at and saw dilapidated, slummy warehouses. And he looked at and thought this would make the perfect spot to put my lower Manhattan Expressway connecting the Holland Tunnel to the Williamsburg Bridge with a fork that went down to the Manhattan Bridge with an elevated, beautiful expressway over and through Broom Street. And all you would need to do is demolish a few unused warehouses and, of course, blocks and blocks of crowded tenement areas. It would have, yeah, required the destruction of more than a dozen blocks of Soho and Little Italy and displaced nearly 2,000 families. Fortunately, the neighborhood fought back. It was through the activism of neighbors and concerned citizens who formed the Joint Committee to Stop the Lower Manhattan Expressway, including Jane Jacobs, most notably, who had already been fighting Moses for a long time. All over the city. And they demonstrated and fought. The project rallied public support behind the residents of the neighborhood. It was a long and bumpy road. And like, you know, Greg, other pieces of really bad legislation, it wouldn't die. It just <laughs> wouldn't go away. You thought it was done, right? You thought they wouldn't really want to hurt those people. But they just kept reintroducing it. They introduced it three times in the okay. 1960s. Wow. And so they just cried kept trying to ram this down the legislature, ram this through the city. No matter how bad it was for people, but in fact, the citizens revolted and it finally, finally died. For more information, check out our shows on Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs. Those are episodes 100 and 200. And so here we are then in the early 1970s with the city's finances in the dumps and the old big warehouses and the faded cast iron palaces Sitting around the neighborhood, mostly underutilized, and zoning laws were preventing legally renting them out for residential purposes. Broom Street and the neighborhood had been saved from Robert Moses's destruction, but it still wasn't what we would call in great shape. And it wasn't attractive to most New Yorkers as a place to go to work or place to go live. But something interesting is happening in New York in the 1960s. Well, a lot of interesting things, obviously, <laughs> but one that I'm going to mention in particular that would change the fate of this warehouse district and would actually set up a model for all similar areas in New York going forward and even around the country. And that is the transformation of commercial lofts, of mm -hmm. which we've been speaking about, into residential lofts, places where people live. Large rooms, well-lit, few amenities because they weren't. a lot of these places didn't have, of course, modern plumbing. They were accessed perhaps only by freight elevators. Now, who would benefit from these kind of unique sort of spaces? In what professions do you think a large room with, with lavish windows, who would, who would benefit most from this? I see where you're going with this, Greg. Mm -hmm. I, probably people who, say, are painting on giant <laughs> canvases that they need, oh, I don't know, a big studio space sure. for? Well, that, that are yeah. too large to fit in small cramped apartments? I'm glad I've painted this picture mm. for you, Tom, because 
there's a lot of deterioration happening in New York during this period, but one place where New York is thriving is it's become the heart of the international art scene, thanks to abstract expressionism and all these New York-based artists in the 50s and 60s. So artists began eyeing these spaces, and they're unused, mm. and thinking, wow, like imagine the fantastic work that I could do in spaces like this. But of course, most of them were zoned for commercial and manufacturing use only, not residential, which is important because a manufacturing zone didn't have to have certain kinds of amenities. Emergency situations were different. There were far fewer modern conveniences in a manufacturing zone, for instance. Well, so then given these restrictions, how, did, how were artists able to move into these loft spaces? Well, they had to organize to get the city's attention. In the early 1960s, there was an organization called the Artist Tenants Association, which petitioned the city for the right to live and work in zones that were not residential. Okay. Now, this being the 60s, the city agreed to a certain extent. And, the, and I'm talking generally speaking at this point, all of New York City, any, any place that was not a residential zone... In a small number of places, artists could live if the building they lived in had the initials AIR on the front of the building, Artist in Residence. Uh-huh. And did you have to be an approved artist? To do it legally, uh-huh. you would have to literally be labeled an artist in the eyes of the city. Okay. There was an artist certification committee which would meet with a potential artist, and that artist would have to justify why they needed to live in a particular space. They would be granted a certificate of occupancy, which would be needed. It's really important, and you know why? Why? Be because you would need that certificate to get loans from the bank because you needed a lot of money to refurbish these places. You were doing that yourself. Uh -huh. you, were, you were renovating this on your own. So these artist lofts were not ready to move in. They were not in move-in condition. <laughs> no, far from it. Definitely not. Uh, but this also kind of underscores another thing that you kind of read between the lines of these histories during this period. These weren't necessarily starving artists at first. They would later be uh, artists of lesser means. But the ones who had to come in initially had to have had some kind of money. Because they had to buy the spaces or they had to rework them into livable spaces. Right. All, yes, exactly. As a result of these initial artists coming in, they were able to make these places quite desirable and then drawing other artists to the area. Do you know, Tom, that today the area is still zoned and that you have to actually be a certified artist to live there? It's since been rezoned for light manufacturing and a lot of these artists are shoehorned in because they are indeed, you know, lightly manufacturing <laughs> their artwork. But, but, but to be clear, there are plenty of now zoned residential buildings as well. So right, a, right. A, a warehouse can be then converted into a loft style apartment building. Sure, sure. And many have. Okay, so back to our story. When did the first wave of artists settle in Soho? This would be in the mid-1960s, mid to late 1960s. The first artist loft space, what we consider the first, is 80 Worcester Street, um, which became the home base for the art collective The Fluxus Group. Uh, and artists like... 
Yoko Ono and George Brecht um, have worked for the Flexus Group. And this was intended to be an artist cooperative. Yes, which would, of course, drive other artists to the area. But it's also, of course, driving galleries to the area as well. And so what's happening is by the mid-1970s, Soho has become the center of the American art world. But it's not only artists, of course, by this period. It's musicians, photographers, filmmakers, dancers. They're all venturing into this district, you know, whether legally or not, depending on how they're zoned and what their jobs are. But what creates this kind of like magical allure of the area, I mean, what I glamorize it, is the idea of it looks very bombed out during the day. You'd walk down these streets and they'd be desolate and perhaps even slightly dangerous. So there was something gritty. Very, very gritty. It was like the essence of New York grittiness in the 1970s. So hardly today's Soho. No, no, absolutely not. It would even, it would maybe even be forlorn at night, but you would have all these destinations, these galleries, and, and soon there would be more than just galleries. There would be bars, restaurants, alternative nightclubs. So mid-1970s. Okay, something else very important to Soho happened in the mid-1970s. A woman named Margot Gale, who was a preservationist, an urban activist, and a journalist, well, she was also a huge fan and even scholar of cast iron architecture. And she turned her preservationist zeal to preserving Soho's cast iron structures. Structures that were being transformed from the inside by this period by many artists. Well, and some which, you know, because they were not protected at all, were also being ripped down and replaced by parking lots and gas stations and other abominations. <laughs> so, And so she founded in 1970 the Friends of Cast Iron Architecture, and she valiantly fought to have the remaining cast iron structures protected from the wrecking ball. Let's not forget that just a few years earlier, Penn Station had been razed to the ground. And it's because of her work and other preservationists that joined her that in 1973, this area that we've been talking about was designated the Soho Cast Iron Historic District, which includes 26 blocks of Soho and 500 buildings, and its borders would be nudged a little bit, extended in 2010. In 1978, it would be made a national historic landmark. So we've got artists coming in. We have the area being then protected mm-hmm. in the 1970s. So there's a lot of cachet. So much so, in fact, that in 1974, New York Magazine wrote an article calling Soho, quote, the most exciting place to live in New York. Which obviously means it's doomed, right? <laughs> I mean, depending on how you want to define doomed, uh, because that means that there's a lot of glamour coming through here. A lot of these galleries are uptown galleries that are hoofing it in mm-hmm. the new downtown, but things are becoming very upscale here at the same time. Right, and, and you know, like used to happen down in Chinatown, people from uptown would come down to slum it mm-hmm. down in Soho. That's a good parallel, yeah. And to check out, you know, check out the scene. So much so that the artists were fighting back. In fact, the piece in the New York Magazine prompted a quick rebuttal from the Soho newsletter on June 7th, 1974, which was published by the Soho Artists Association. They published an article entitled The Most Exciting Place to Destroy in New York, (laughs) in which they lament, you know, these, these new moneyed uptowners. 
And I found that on the Soho Memory Project, which is a fabulous website. I would I would say that Soho revolutionizes both what is a cool neighborhood and then what is a neighborhood that is over, <laughs> right? Because then by the late 1970s and early 1980s, clothing boutiques are moving in because, of course, they also appeal to a high-end clientele. So right, I guess if people are shopping for art in galleries... Maybe they'll buy an expensive dress. And so then that sort of developed into the 1980s and 1990s. And the boutiques started drawing larger retail stores. And soon the area became zoned for even larger shopping experiences. My personal early 90s experience back then was being a sheepish tourist. Kind of like walking around Soho thinking, oh, this place is dark and cool. But then seeing clothing stores, which I could never afford to buy anything in, next to, at night, places that would open up their gratings to avant-garde theater. Very cool. And I remember wandering down in the early 90s to go to Canal Jeans, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to pick up some baggy, stonewashed (laughs) jeans and maybe some Doc Martens. And then perhaps walk all the way up to pick up some clubwear at Le Chateau. But oh, wow. What's interesting, you know, is that is a decade later in 2004, Canal Street Jeans would be long gone and replaced by Bloomingdale's. So the upscale department store would move back to the glorious old cast iron facades of Broadway. By that time, the art scene which had kind of defined and discovered Soho, if you will, had pretty much moved out. Now, the artists are still there today in those lofts, but the gallery scene would shift and move over to West Chelsea, today the area underneath the High Line. According to a 2010 report in the New York Times, doing an interview with a sociology professor from Brooklyn College, quote, Another factory district turned artist haven turned hedge funders habitat. Soho has twice as many chain stores as boutiques now and three times as many boutiques as art galleries. So that's where we're at with Soho today. Well, that's a surprising downer (laughs) that you just sprung on us, Greg, that you just springed (laughs) on us. But it's not all a downer. As you walk around Soho today, you still have these magnificent cast iron structures to behold on not just Broadway, but all of these side streets. And even if they are chain stores and department stores, they do make a nice alternative to doing your shopping in Midtown. Mm -hmm. It is true that Broadway and the side streets can become incredibly overtaxed, shall we say, (laughs) with other pedestrians. And that sometimes, you know, if you're just trying to walk around and look up and admire uh, the cast iron facades, you can be literally lifted off the ground (laughs) by Italian and French tourists on their way to (laughs) Uniqlo. Yes. There are times to go to Soho when you can really take it in on your own. I strongly recommend going during my favorite time, the early morning, when you really have... Broadway, not to mention the side streets, to yourself. I would also recommend walking down West Broadway, where many of the art galleries still exist, and many of them actually trace back to the late 1960s. And so you can still see some kind of some beautiful and stunning artwork there. I like walking through Soho around 5 or 6 p.m. when the sun is setting and hitting those cast iron facades. Very photogenic. But if you'd like to relive... Soho in the 70s and 80s, I recommend two Hollywood movies. 
The Eyes of Laura Mars with Faye Dunaway and the Martin Scorsese movie After Hours, which almost entirely takes place here in Soho. We'll have much, much more on Soho and its exciting history on our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com. Join us there and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you name it. (laughs) And a big shout out to our patrons who support us with small monthly donations on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. We also provide extra audio just for our patrons. And so if you go there and subscribe now, you can get some of those extra back catalog features. That's right. And it's because of our more than 500 members on Patreon that we're able to make a new show every two weeks. So we really could not do this without you. And we send you our heartfelt thank you. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Mm -hmm.